0: You have a specific idea about what God has called you to do. If it's it's getting specific at all in your faith, I think that's like a lucky thing to be able to have and a real gift from God. And at the same time, we have in Scripture like a general calling that God gives on our life. And so my question for you this morning is, do you have some idea about what that calling would look like? Like how God has shaped you and how God has given you a unique purpose in His kingdom and in the world? This is a really exciting thing to have as a Christian. It's unique to living as a Christian. It's also unique to living as a Christian in our time, because if you go back to the 1500s, the idea of Christians being called into ministry and to serve as missionaries in their everyday life, that was a new concept. And if we just kind of like warp back to the 1500s, you'll remember that the printing press had just been invented. And then people could now have a Bible of their own and read their own Bible. And people were able to access scripture on their own to say, "Whoa, it looks like I'm made righteous and I'm made a saint. I'm made a holy one because of Jesus. And if that's the case, then the Spirit is inside me. And if that's the case, then I see that I'm called to follow Jesus. And commentators, and I even saw one philosopher this week, comment on how that idea has changed the world. The idea of a personal calling revealed to you from God. The the philosopher was also making the point that that idea has made its way into Western society, but now is individualized and secularized, and already I'm starting my sermon like getting getting too intellectual here, but just track with me. Uh, If you take the idea of God revealing a calling to your life, but then you take God out of the picture, now you have the expectation of you finding your true purpose in life, but you take God out of the picture, and now for many people, especially young people, the idea of a calling and the question of what is my role in the world is a crushing weight. The cause of depression, the cause of frustration, the cause of meaninglessness in your life because you have the question of what is my calling, but then you rem- if you try and remove God out of the picture where he reveals that to you or where he himself calls you to follow him. The good news of our passage today, Matthew 4, is that we're not just meant to find our purpose in the world on our own. We're not just meant to kind of analyze and take about 18 or, 17, uh, 18 or 19 personality tests to figure out what your StrengthsFinder 2.0 is or what your disk profile is or what your Myers-Briggs personality is or what your flag page is. What, you're not just meant to take all these things and then find your own calling in the world. Instead, you have a person, the person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who has come to you and said, will you follow me? You have a person in God to follow. Not just a calling to find out on your own. Matthew 4, starting in verse 17, says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out. To fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill uh, with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. In this passage, we start a new segment of the book of Matthew. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry— there's preparation and announcement of who he is, and Matthew announces Jesus as king in every passage of the book of Matthew, but here we, find, we hear for the first time Jesus preach. And in the passage, he quotes, he says the same thing that, uh, the, that John the Baptist said earlier in chapter three, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is announcing, I'm the king and I have arrived. And then he calls these men, four different men, to follow him. And they left their nets. One of them left their father. They left their, um, their family businesses to go follow Jesus. And this is the start. The first followers of Jesus, fishermen, who have changed the world to this day. And Jesus called them to, to follow him. And we'll see four things in the passage. Uh, we'll see that following Jesus is different, drastic, dangerous, and disciple making. Uh, I always have these points that start out with the same letter. It's not because I need to be cute with the sermons, uh, but what I do is, I'm letting you know this because it's not going to change. What I do is I'll study a passage like crazy, and actually we study the passage every week for the sermon with a team of people, and then we'll pull out themes that are important to do. Uh, In order to sum up the passage, we spend like like a a segment of the week saying, how can we really sum this up so we know exactly what's going on in this Bible passage? And uh, when there are synonyms that start with the same letter, then that's just like God's grace on our sermon preparation. But uh, I I don't say it because it's cute. I say it because it's in the the text. Really, we're asking the question, what is it like to be a follower of Jesus? And we see those four things, that they are different, that his calling is drastic, that it is a dangerous calling, and that it involves disciple-making. Following Jesus is different in two ways. It's different because in the first century, uh, following Jesus was totally different than any other religion in the day. And it's also different than any other religion in today's world. And it's different than following any kind of lifestyle choice, any kind of dharma, any kind of uh, recommendation system that people can give you for your life. Jesus, Following Jesus is totally different. I say any kind of life system because you'll notice there's different things popping up in the world today that start looking a lot more like religion than in years past though they have nothing to do with God. Like, can I get an amen from someone who's in CrossFit, right? Or, or has anyone done Peloton? Where you go, okay, I'm pedaling on a, a, motor, a fake bicycle, but then all of a sudden the person on Peloton is like, reach for your inner being. Your worth is that, that of diamonds and gold. And you go, dude, it's just a bike. You know, I'm just like sweating to death in my spare room, just like anyone else. But somehow these things get turned into these metaphysical, beautiful things. Or CrossFit is like, you're lifting a thing to here and then you take a breath and you lift it to here, but then all of a sudden people are high-fiving and being like, you're a unicorn, follow your dreams. You know, it's like I'm lifting things repeatedly. You know, it's, it's a pretty simple system. Uh, it's different. D- don't just think there's a re- religious world and the non-religious world. All these different parts of our society and different dreams that people have in their life, they're an attempt at knowing the transcendent. And following Jesus is different than all of those things. Um, in the early church, there were two primary objections to Christianity because the accusation against Christianity in the first century, in Jesus' time, and in the, the lifetimes of the early followers, uh, was that it wasn't a religion at all and that they were atheists. So what would cause, in our day, the, the most significant religion uh, to be called atheism in the first century? Well, first, the objection uh, to Christianity in the first century, probably the most prominent one, was that women played too significant a role. The, uh, the earliest eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. And so some male scholars, uh, people who uh, knew some of the laws in the, in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, would say that um, it was silly to have trusted these early eyewitnesses of the resurrection because, after all, they cannot be trusted. They're women. That was the first objection. Second objection w- w- was similar to it in just saying that women played a leadership role. So l- women played a significant role, a church planning role, a funding role, a- an amazing role in the early church, and that was a-, a countercultural idea back then. And then the the other primary objection is that it didn't look like any other religion in the day. And to to imagine why Christians would be called atheists, you kind of have to imagine a new Christian convert in the Roman world trying to share his faith with his neighbors. And just like today, the objections to Christianity, they weren't new because as a Christian, you hear the same things over and over again. There's always like a top five list of objections that a particular culture at a particular time has against Christianity. And so um, the first one would have been this oh, you're a part of a new religion, interesting. What tribe or ethnicity is the basis of your religion? Because that was, the, that was every religion had a, an ethnicity, a racial component to it. That was the real foundation of the religion or a tribe of people or a vocation. And so the question would be, what ethnicity is your religion? And of course, the answer for early Christians would have been, well, no, there is no ethnicity. It's just everyone is called to follow Jesus. Oh, interesting, you might add, or you might uh, ask. Then where is your temple? And a Christian would answer, "There is no temple. Jesus is our temple." That was broken down and, and uh, rebuilt in the resurrection. Okay, no temple. Interesting. Where do you sacrifice to the gods? Well, Jesus was our sacrifice. Oh, interesting. Where are your statues and your relics? Well, no, Jesus is our object of worship. And of course, the question would be, what? No temple. No statues. No objects of worship to make the gods pleased. What kind of religion is this? And, of course, the answer for early Christians was, this is no religion at all. It's about good news. It's not about religion. Christianity, drastically different. And everyone in the first century knew it. Somehow has lost, gotten lost in translation in our modern world today. Christianity is different because of that. And then um, Christianity is unique and different Because Jesus uses nobodies and below average people to change the world. If you look in verse 18, it says that Jesus saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and, uh, I'm sorry, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were fishermen. That's in verse 18. He said, follow me, and they jumped at the chance to follow Jesus. Jesus. And there's two other men as well, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. The point is, Jesus uses every kind of person to change the world in his kingdom. Every type of person is included. Um, I think it's so interesting how God uses, like, just average, below average, plain people, or people with some sort of, like, personality flaws to work within his kingdom, and God consistently does it. He's doing it to you right now. Sometimes annoying people, sometimes people with a weird sense of humor, but somehow somebody gave them a microphone, can be used by God in church. But that's the story of the church. That's the story of our church, the people who hug the babies, the people who teach the Bible studies. When you get to know them, you go, oh, interesting. These are flawed people being gradually made into the image of Jesus. Our church is like that. Every healthy church is like that. People who come from all walks of life, from all different stories, and are, are seeking to be sanctified, which is a church word to say to grow in our faith closer to Jesus. Sometimes, um, I see people living, maybe I'm guilty of this as well, somewhat of a boring Christian life. Um, there's a way to do church that's very boring. And I think the the most boring version of Christianity, you might say, is the version that says, um, you're not good enough to do anything for God yet. But if you just learn a bunch of stuff from some older folks, then one day when you get older, you'll be able to run a program, and tell some other people how to learn. And then when they get older, they can teach some people. If all Christianity is, is the idea that you would learn some things and then eventually learn enough things that you can teach those things to someone else, that sounds very boring. It doesn't sound like we would ever change any sort of injustice in the world. It doesn't sound like any people who have material needs would ever get those because that version of Christianity is just learn some things and then teach some things. And most of your Christian life is meant sitting and learning from someone else. So sometimes when we feel bored in our faith, it's not that God is boring, it's that you're boring. That's what I'm trying to say, is that we live boring Christian lives. We live lives where we don't recognize a need and then meet it. We don't sacrifice ourselves for the people. We just have a watered down, cut in half version of Christianity that says, Come, sit, hear, go, come, sit, and hear. But instead, God leads us like he led these fishermen on an adventure on a journey to realize how God is moving in your life, to see the spirits work in your life, to cause some sort of spiritual growth and to go on the adventure that God has called you to do in raising your kids, in helping those in need, in reaching out to your neighbors in going to foreign countries and whatever the heck God calls you to do when he says, follow me. I don't mean to insult, but if you feel bored in your faith, there might be a possibility that you are being boring, and that's why you're bored. In this passage, it's really interesting because the um, the common thing to do if you wanted to be discipled by a Jewish scholar, but even in the Greco-Roman world, if you wanted to be mentored by someone who would help you in a trade and help you get a new, uh, a, a, you know, advance in the ranks of a job, then you would study like crazy. You would make as many connections as you could with the people that you knew, and then you, as a student, would request that someone disciple you. Now, discipleship was not just a word used by the church in the first century, because if you were anyone getting trained up into any field or into any level of politics or social standing, you would be discipled by someone. But the A-plus students, the high-achieving students, would all be people who at a certain stage of their life would not go into a business like fishing. They wouldn't go into the family business. They would graduate from the social standing of their parents, and they would get discipled into a higher social standing. And then those winners, those A-plus students, would already have someone discipling them. But then Jesus inverts the social norm. And instead of waiting for people to come to him and say, will you please disciple me, he goes out. He goes out to people who, because they're fishermen, are likely people who have been passed up by all the other disciple makers, who have been passed up by all the other vocations, and then their plan C, their backup college, was to go work with their parents and fish. So with some people, four men, who might very well feel like losers, might feel like the rest of their life was going to be relegated to this one job. This one smelly job, this one job where you get sunburnt every day that it's sunny. This hardworking blue collar job with no status, when they felt like that was the, they were relegated to that in life. Now Jesus comes to the shore and says, follow me. So Jesus insists on using nobodies and below average people to change the world. Uh, Sometimes you hear a a sermon or you read something that just sticks in your craw for years. And a long time ago, I heard a sermon from this old professor. His name was Howard Hendricks. And uh, somebody gave me a cassette tape. I think my grandma gave me a cassette tape. So you should listen to this. And uh, I, I plugged it in. And this old professor said, you know, the miracle of God's ministry is that he uses you and me. And it's just always stuck in my head. Like the miracle of God working in the world is that he uses you and me. I mean, think about it. God is God, creator of the universe, sovereign and powerful and able to do whatever the heck God wants with his kingdom. And then what God does in the world is use you and me. Think of the meaning, think of the purpose, think of the adventure and the joy that it can bring To not just be on your own in life, to not just discern your own calling and find your own place in the world. And to not just watch God do work while your life is meaningless. But the miracle of God's ministry is that God himself uses you and me. So, God's calling is different. It's also drastic. If you look in verse 20, you'll see that Peter and Andrew, uh, per Matthew's description, at once left their nets and followed him. And in verse 22, it says James and John immediately left their net. Uh, I'm sorry, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This wasn't the first time these men met Jesus. It's not like they didn't know who he was. They had some interaction. It's described in other gospels. They had some knowledge of who Jesus is, and it was good news for them to hear this invitation to follow Jesus. And that is why they suddenly left their nets. They knew who he was. They realized who he was at some point, And then when he came calling... It was a no-brainer for them to leave their vocation and to leave their family business to go follow Jesus. Jesus here is kind of putting two different groups of people on tilt. Um, He's putting individualistic people, like predominantly Western individualistic people, on tilt. Because God is saying that your following of Jesus is more important than your job. Now, that can, be, that can put you on tilt. Then Jesus is saying, your allegiance to me, your love for me needs to be greater than the career that you're working in. And he also puts very traditional family-oriented people uh, on tilt as well because he's saying, leave, the da- leave your dad in the boat. Leave your family allegiance, leave your, your family norms to come follow me. That means following Jesus is drastic, There's something about this call that warrants that we drop the nets and then follow Jesus. It's as if you were sitting on the bench at some point in life, and then your coach said, it's time to get in the game. And this moment is when, if you are like I was at different stages of my high school athletic career, it's as if the coach looks at you and says, hey, bench warmer, Hey, person who doesn't play get a lot of playing time, it's time to get in the game. And Jesus called them, and they immediately left their nets. That is a drastic transition from working your entire life in this vocation to now saying, I'm leaving it for a level of uncertainty, for a, a lack of security maybe. I don't know what God's going to do with the rest of uh, these three years or the rest of Jesus' life. They didn't know. But still, because of the worth that they saw in Jesus, they left their nets. I'm reminded um, that when we talk about needing to love Jesus more than anything else, that it brings up an interesting kind of curiosity that people have about Christianity in our day. And that is one of fanaticism. I mean, we talk about loving Jesus. You've got to love Jesus more than your family. And you've got to love Jesus more than your vocation. And you've got to love Jesus in this kind of like dangerous, drastic way. It brings up the question... Um, Isn't it that kind of fanatical religious belief that causes people to make really unwise choices? Or you might even say that some people, when they're fanatical about a religious belief, it causes them uh, to commit acts of violence. Or it makes them judgmental or it makes them closed-minded because they're so fanatical about their beliefs. I would uh, tend to agree with the fact that that's a distinct possibility. I mean, I think all of us either know or know someone who knows somebody who has religious beliefs and it causes them to be judgmental because they would look down at somebody who doesn't have the same fervent belief that they have. Or I agree that it has certainly caused violence in the world today because uh, we have accounts of all kinds of people saying, I have a deeply held religious belief and it causes me or or permits me then to cause violence um, in the world or to commit acts of violence. I think we all know that that is a distinct possibility. The question is, is what Jesus is calling people to, is that the thing that we're talking about? Um, If you believe in Jesus, what I mean to say is, we know one thing about Jesus. He is asking for drastic, fanatical commitment to himself. Like when every other religion, even today, says, don't worship me, the leaders of these religions would always say, don't worship me, follow my dharma. And that's supposedly the final words of the Buddha, that um, I leave you with my dharma to guide you. Don't worship me, follow my teaching. And that's the case with other world religions as well uh, today. And yet Jesus says, I'm the way. And if you're looking for truth, I'm the truth. And if you're looking for a new kind of life, I'm the life. It's all about me. Jesus accepts worship. He forgives people of their sins recorded in the Gospels. Jesus is everything, and he's saying, this is, I am what you're looking for. When every other religion says follow the teaching, Jesus is saying, follow me. He's asking for fanatical belief. But when you're a Christian, you are saying, A biblical Christian is saying, I'm a deeply flawed sinner who needs God's mercy, God's favor, and God's grace. I'm no better than anyone else. We're all leveled at the foot of the cross. We're all leveled at the expectation to be perfect before God, and all of us fail. And if that's what you're saying, and if because of that you have fanatical dependence on and love for Jesus, then how would that cause self-righteousness when you meet somebody who has different thoughts than you or makes mistakes that frustrate you? How is it that if your fanatical following Jesus is saying, I worship him because he was good to me in my sin, how would that cause, uh, how would that cause self-righteousness? So I guess the conclusion we can come to is, if you know someone who is fanatical about their following of Jesus and it causes them to be bitter, or self-righteous, or judgmental, or commit acts of violence on anyone else, what you know about them is that it's not that they're following Jesus too much, it's that they're following Jesus too little. The prescription that's given to us by many today is to say, don't be fanatical about Jesus, have moderation. It's like if following Jesus were a fine whiskey, they would say, it's too strong, cut it with some water. Or don't drink the thing straight, it'll mess you up, but cut it, Uh, dilute it. And so when our tendency is to say, have moderation in all things, and don't follow Jesus fanatically, and that's the way to be open-minded, that's the way to be peaceable, that's the way to be gracious to people, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Moderation in all things will only create moderation. It will not create the kind of grace and love and heart-melting forgiveness that Jesus offers. So, his calling is drastic. One more thing I want to say about the drastic calling. I've noticed that um, I'm just kind of plagued with the question, why do some people fall away from their faith? Like, I'm just so, for years, I've been interested. Why does it seem like some people, they, they become Christian, and they worship God, and they say things that sound so Christian, And then at some point in their life, like a light switch goes off, and they just go, I'm done with that. I don't want to do that anymore. And it used to be a real discouragement to me because I I really thought that in the first phase, they were really worshiping Jesus, and they were able to just totally walk away from all the things that they previously said were about God's goodness and his worthiness and all of these things. But I realized when we talk about following Jesus fanatically, that a lot of people walk away in their faith because... They came to Jesus in a time in life where they really needed something. Like they said, I'm hurting and I need to feel better. Or I'm lonely and I'm wondering if God will give me a romantic partner. Or I'm I'm alone and I don't know what's gonna happen in my future. And so here's how the process goes. I'm gonna become religious. I'll act good. I will do the religious deeds. And then maybe God will give me The romantic partner that I seek. Maybe God will give me the security that I need or help my life kind of pan out. And then a few years will go by and they're doing the Christian thing. But then suddenly people will realize it's not working for me anymore. And so they can leave it. So oftentimes this is a symptom of someone who is not fanatically following Jesus and then dumping it But fanatically trying to please God, if I sing the songs right, if I feel the emotions right, if I do the religious deeds, if I pray the right way, if I raise my hands and worship, then God will have to have my life pan out. And then when he doesn't give you the thing that you wanted in the first place, then you can leave it. It wasn't fanaticism and then lack of fanaticism. It was worshiping the thing that you worshiped in the first place with a religious covering on it. And then that thing finally being unearthed to say, if God's not going to give me that romantic partner, then I'm going to change my view of sexuality and do what feels right to me. Or if God's not going to keep me from trials or pain, then what good is he? And I can ditch it. God's calling is something that is drastic because he's not just a, a king who is here to serve your agenda. He's a king that's asking you to follow him. And so my my question is, is he your king or is he your consultant? Is Jesus your king or is Jesus your consultant? When he asks you, follow me, do you drop your nets? Do you leave the business? Do you follow him because he's worthy, because he's good, because of what he's done for you on the cross? Or is he a means to an end to give you the thing that you really want in the, uh, and, and have wanted for some time? If he's king, then it's his agenda. This is another sermon for another day. But if you want to treat Jesus as king in your life, then we obey his commands. Uh, we accept what he gives you. We trust him no matter the the circumstances. If he's trustworthy enough to follow, then he's trustworthy enough to accept what he gives you. That we, we rely on him and we expect him to work in our lives. I'm just reminded of the John Newton quote where he says, If God is king, then none can ever ask too much. If God is king, then you can never come to him and ask for too much because he's king. He's king over the whole domain. He has all the riches. He has all the power. And if he is king, then you can't ever go to him and say, God, I have this thing in my life. Will you change it? I need some huge, perplexing, difficult issue to find a resolution. Will you give me the wisdom to, and discernment to navigate through it? Whatever the heck your situation is that you are sitting down with today here at church, John Newton says, if he's king, then you can never ask him for too much. And if he is your king, and if you follow him, then you're able to just like go after him and say, Jesus, will you do something about this issue, this pain, this loneliness? Relying on him and expecting him him to work in our lives. Let's uh, kind of turn a corner and uh, wrap up with two quicker points. Thirdly, um, Jesus, his call is always dangerous. His call is always dangerous. In the movie 1917, a, a Academy Award winning movie that uh, came out recently in the last year, uh, at the main climax of the movie is a quote, and I don't want to give much away from the movie, but when you see it, or if you see it, you'll notice that um, the statement that is the pinnacle of the meaning of the entire movie is this. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope is a dangerous thing. The movie uh, is really interesting, kind of a beautifully shot movie. Uh, It's shot as though it's one camera clip, and as one camera kind of follows the characters around um, the set, you'll see over foxholes, over mortar uh, uh, crevices through trench warfare, through burnt down cities. It's all kind of just filmed as one shot following these two young boys who are meant to bring a message from command to the front lines. They're going from the safety of a bunker where a general, a captain gives them orders to say, take this message to the men on the front lines. And the whole plot of the movie, is this like highly suspenseful single shot story as the camera just follows these running men through all these different circumstances as they're meant to bring news to the front line and if they can do it and if they can keep up hope through being stabbed and being shot at and risking their life and uh, risking life and limb then they will be able to bring the news to the front line and save tens of thousands of men's lives the story Academy Award-winning, powerful movie of World War I is a story of hope. And without giving anything away, at the climax of the movie, a captain looks at one of the young men on the front lines and says, hope is a dangerous thing. That same thing is true with our lives in Christ. Hope is something that would cause you to charge in to a lack of security, to follow Jesus when he doesn't have answers for every place that he's going to take you where you don't have answers about every part of your, uh, your future, your funding, your, uh, the, the kinds of things that God might take you through in following him. And in that calling to follow Jesus, the hope of having Jesus, of knowing Jesus, the future that we have in Jesus that is secure, causes in the life of a Christian hope that causes us to sacrifice for other people. Hope is a dangerous thing. Because we have our identity secure in Jesus, because we have our future secure in Jesus, it causes Christians to live counterculturally. Not for the acceptance of the world or for the need or for the worship of security, but for Jesus. Because we have hope. And in the same way that these young men take news to the front line to save, uh, and because they risk their life, save tens of thousands of men, in the same way we live as Christians with a message that goes into places that can be dangerous, takes on people who need something from us and causes kind of a sacrifice in our own lives. Hope is a dangerous thing. This is what happens with Jesus. If you look in verse 23, Jesus goes throughout Galilee and he's healing people. He's going to the hurting, the sick, the poor, the displaced, He's looking at, uh, at people and caring for people in his ministry, the very beginning of his ministry, to people who have been outcasts. People who are not only thought of as diseased and therefore should be shunned and pushed away because you could catch a disease from them, but in the belief system of the day, people who had those kinds of illnesses were thought to have been spiritually unclean and physically unclean, and so you don't want to be around them on a spiritual level, and people didn't want to be around them on a physical level because they could catch some sort of virus from them, and so they were outcasts, they were lonely. Some of these people would live years of their life without anyone touching them or caring for them or bandaging them. People wouldn't want to spend time around them if they had a, a seizure disorder that was perceived to have been something spiritual. And now Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry, goes into those areas, goes into the lives of those people, and cares for them. In verse 23, it says, uh, "'He was healing every disease and sickness among the people, "'and news about him spread, and so people came, "'all who were ill with various diseases.'" severe pain, demon possession, having seizures, and, uh, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. And because of it, large crowds from all of these places began to gather. That's what Jesus did. And that's what early Christians did. People who took on their, the following of Jesus did exactly this in the early church. One of the things that even um, secular, skeptical historians record today is things like the Plague of Cyprian uh, in 250 AD. Now, a, a skeptical scholar who, is, uh, who has no interest in doing any kind of work to defend Christianity or to say that God had any kind of hand in the spread of Christianity, going from a ragtag group of fishermen to changing the Roman world, which no other you know, group of people could do militarily, but through conversion and through the good news of the gospel, the entire society was kind of transformed. Um, even skeptical historians would record that Christianity grew partially because, in these urban centers of the Roman world, when a plague hit, Christians ran into the cities at the risk of, at the threat of, and as the co- at the cost of their own life to help those who were poor, who were lonely, marginalized, sick. All the people of means and of status, left the urban centers to go live pagan lives. And there's there's a study that kind of ties even the word pagan to rural areas because these people of privilege left the cities to live their pagan life while Christians charged into the city to be just like Jesus. They followed him. They acted like him. They sacrificed their lives like him. And so skeptical historians record that Christianity grew like crazy through conversion because though the Christians who cared for the sick died, many of the people who were cared for were changed. And Christianity grew through people having the good news of the kingdom on their lips as they bandaged wounds, as they hugged people, as they cared for people who were hurting Jesus is calling us to a dangerous life. I'll go back to my previous statement, and if your faith looks boring, it might be that you were meant for something sacrificial. You were meant for something meaningful, and you're being boring. I I think of um, this week. We drove uh, to the Fresno Zoo. I'm from Fresno, and the Fresno Zoo is this. Cool. It's, it's the coolest thing in Fresno. And so, you know, the zoo, the Fresno Zoo is actually a pretty nice zoo. And at it, the one thing when I was a kid that I wanted to see was the monkeys because they throw stuff. That's a side note. It has nothing to do with my point. And to see a lion. I mean, it's the king of the jungle. It's a lion. And you're a little kid and you go, dad, where's the lion? I got to see the lion. And you go up to a, the lion cage and he's skinny and he's sleeping, and the only time the lion gets up is to eat a few bites to eat, and then he just flops back down in the sun. You go, that's the king of the jungle. That's an animal that's held in captivity. That's an animal that's been pacified. It's the king of the jungle. It's meant to roar. It's meant to have a big old lion mane and to go charging through the Serengeti. That's a lion. And you go to the zoo, and you see a lazy lion that's been fed, and the food's just been given to him, and so he's just skinny and not muscular, not threatening at all. Some of us live Christian lives just like that. Tamed, passive. We don't live a dangerous calling. We live a safe, boring calling. When God is calling us to do something, to receive salvation in Christ, to be changed by our salvation in Christ, and to go out and live an adventurous, dangerous calling where we, even while we're raising kids, even while we don't have every uh, answer, uh, question answered about where God's going to take us and what it's going to take, we, we follow Jesus into this dangerous calling, even into the lives of people who have need around us. Let me close with this. The call to follow Jesus is lastly and always disciple-making. Christians, simply put, are in the people business. There's all kinds of other things that you could care about in life. God does care for us. uh, God does call us to care for creation, like in general. He does call us to be good stewards of all kinds of things. There's different ministries around the church that you can get involved in, like cutting the donuts and doing the live stream for the service. And um, all of those things are awesome. They're all means to an end because everything that we do as Christians is meant to be in the people business, in the disciple making business, because to God, people are. Matter. I uh, read one time an urban ministry professor who said, simply put, God loves people more than trees. And because there's, there's parts of LA and Orange County where there's more people than trees, and there's parts of the outer world where there's more trees than people, by nature, God would have to love Orange County more. Than some other part of the country. Now, I don't know, I can't speak for God, but if you just follow equation, God loves people more than trees. God has a heart for our city, for our neighborhoods, for our, uh, for the areas in which we look over maybe a hillside and just see it covered with homes because God loves people. And if God loves people, we are in a fantastic place to do God's will. Sometimes we go out to the mountains and we go, listen to the breeze, look at the pine trees, and the pine trees, they point up to God. Seriously, like minimal. Pine trees are pine trees. Cut them down, burn them, make some warmth for some people. Why? Because God loves people. Now, okay, that's an oversimplification. But when we get preoccupied with God's nature and the clouds and the mountains, look over LA and Orange County and see God's creation. In the, in the face of every person, every type of ethnicity, every socioeconomic class, because God has called us to be in the business of disciple-making. And we are meant, like we see in our passage in verse 19, Jesus says, and is honestly, if you're a Christian, he's saying it to you this morning, come follow me and I will make you out to fish and I will send you out to fish for people. You have to understand that when Jesus said this, he was talking about nets, not poles. When we think of, okay, cute saying, Jesus, uh, you're meant to like throw out a pole and it has a little bait. And we have a whole conception of fishing in our minds that actually is um, not accurate to what the passage is talking about. So Jesus is not saying, put some sort of fake bait on something. And then throw it out to your coworker in the cubicle next to you and go, hey man, you want to go to church? No? Okay, cool. Like, I throw out a little bit of bait and then reel it back in real quick. Anybody want to go to church? No? Okay, cool. You know, or do anybody want to be a Christian and give your life to Jesus? No? Okay, cool. It's not just throw out some fake stuff and then reel it back in and see if anyone is desperate enough to bite. The imagery here, and, and it's it's not meant to say as a church. Let's Shen Yun people into coming to some sort of musical, and then that's the term I use. Nobody else. Okay, let's let's Shen Yun some people where we throw up a billboard, where we do a musical, and then about halfway through the musical, you go, I think this might be a cult, and then you uh and then you like get them into something, and then you talk to them, and maybe you'll, you'll get a few people who are really lonely and desperate, and they'll be able to join your religion. It's not just a bait. And a switch. Nobody else uses the term Shen Yun. Okay, now you learned something new today. So it's not just that. It's nets. And in ancient Near Eastern imagery, uh, the sea is a kingdom of darkness. Think of Genesis 1. Over this sea abyss, God made order. So sea is dark, it's cataclysmic, it's uncertain. And, and that's the imagery that we're working with. And then you cast a net and you do some gathering and you do some including. And fishing for people in this metaphor is to say, helping people and gathering those who want to live the sacrificial call to follow Jesus, gathering to them together and including them, and then helping them go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's what it means to follow Jesus, that's what it means to fish for people. It's not just casting uh, a line and catching a person, but being inclusive in such a way where we gather people and say, do you want to follow Jesus? And then bringing them into a new world, the kingdom of light, where they can know Jesus. And that might be where you're at this morning. Like maybe you're here and this is a new church thing for you, or maybe you're back to church for some time and it's good news to have God Make that same call in your life. Follow me. Not a religion, not a list, but Jesus. And it might be encouraging for you if you're here this morning and you feel kind of worthless. You feel like you're a C plus student in the kingdom of God. And to have Jesus say, Follow me, and I will make you into a fisher of people. I'll put you to work. I'll give you a purpose within my kingdom because that is true of every single one of us in every place in our city that we work, in every relationship that we have. That is a calling that God has given to us. My prayer for us as a church is that we would take that call seriously, that it would be a different kind of calling. It wouldn't be domesticated into something boring, that it would be a drastic thing, that we would be able to charge into, into situations where we're needed in a dangerous way and that we would make disciples of all nationalities. Let's pray.